1: Hi there, it's Fareed here. There is no new GPS today, but instead I have a special treat for you. With the American election just days away, we are all thinking a lot about what real leadership looks like. So I want you to listen to my special, How to Lead, on just that topic. It features Bill Gates, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Stanley McChrystal, John Lewis. Sadly, Congressman Lewis passed away in July. But I'm sure you will want to hear what he had to say on this crucial topic at this crucial juncture. And don't worry, GPS will be back right here next Sunday. Thanks for listening. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria with a special edition, How to Lead. What does it mean to lead? The question has always been a fascinating one, of interest to people in business, politics, academia, really everywhere. It's perhaps taken on a fresh relevance because we have in the White House today a man with a very distinctive style of leadership.
2: Nobody disobeys my orders.
1: President Trump is a leader, just ask the millions who follow him unquestionably. (laughs) To many others, though, he is impulsive, disruptive, and dangerous. In December, he became one of the few presidents in history to be impeached by the House of Representatives. Trump believes he has been successful by his own measure.
2: Nobody's done the job that we've done. I mean, nobody's done the job that we've done on the border. Nobody has done more for Israel. Nobody's done more for the military than I have. This November,
1: Americans will choose to entrust Mr. Trump with four more years in office or to elect a new leader. As the candidates battle for the biggest job in the world, it's a good time to consider what makes a great leader. I ask this question more broadly than in reference to Donald Trump, of course, and ranging far more widely than the realm of politics. Can strong leadership skills in the battlefield translate to the boardroom? Are there certain personality traits shared by history's greatest leaders? Does leadership always come from the top down? In this hour, I'll talk with civil rights icon, Congressman John Lewis, about leading through consensus during difficult, sometimes violent circumstances.
3: You have to be brave, you have to be bold, you have to be courageous, and just go for it.
1: I'll ask Pulitzer Prize winning historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin, about the character traits that make presidents great. I
4: think the human qualities that make a person leader, the ability to grow, to learn from their mistakes. Bill Gates
1: tells me about turning a passion into a mega profitable global business.
0: You really are forced to say, do I enjoy this? Am I good at this? Should I have someone else do it?
1: And retired four-star General Stanley McChrystal says, Americans need only to look in the mirror to understand their current leader. Leaders
2: will reflect who we want to be. We need to look in the mirror and decide, who we are, who we want to be, what's important to us. This is How To Lead.
1: Not many people can say they've danced with one president, deeply influenced others, and won a Pulitzer Prize. But my first guest found herself sharing the dance floor with Lyndon Baines Johnson as a White House fellow. She later assisted in writing his memoirs. Doris Kearns Goodwin went on to write several presidential biographies, including a Pulitzer Prize-winning book on FDR. Her study of Abraham Lincoln served as an inspiration for Barack Obama and Steven Spielberg, the latter who went on to make the related film, Lincoln, starring Daniel Day-Lewis.
0: Blood's been spilled
2: to afford us this moment. Now, now, now!
1: Her latest book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, is a reflection on the leadership styles of the presidents she has studied so closely. Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, FDR, and LBJ. Although these men spanned a century of American history, Goodwin says they had qualities in common that helped them reach the highest office in the land. And while there is no single path for leadership success, there may be lessons for the current occupant of the Oval Office. So when you think about leadership, what do you think are, are the core qualities? Because I, I, in your book, the, the guy who stands out to me is Franklin Roosevelt, partly because he's a great favorite of mine. But this extraordinary set of skills of being able to listen to people, but then hide things from them, manage them. That famous line one day he says, uh, my left hand never knows what my right hand is doing. Describe Roosevelt's leadership style in that way.
4: Well, I think what Roosevelt's leadership style starts with is he had extraordinary empathy, which I think is a critical quality for any leader. And I think it had expanded because of his polio. He sort of began to identify with people to whom fate had also dealt an unkind hand, as had he. So people would come in his office and he would know who they were. He would know how to talk to them to get them relaxed. And by the end of the evening, he had not only talked to them about their families, but he had gotten everything that was in their head about whatever issue he
1: was interested in. What about um, Lincoln? When you think about Lincoln, uh, what are the qualities that strike you as most salient?
4: I think what Lincoln has right from the start is just this extraordinary humility and that doesn't mean humbleness, it means that from the beginning he had to ask other people to help him learn. So he scours the countryside for books, he reads everything he can lay his hands on and he never gives up that attempt to make himself a better person so that he could acknowledge errors as he goes along the way. When he runs for office the first time, he's only 23 years old. And what stuns me about it is that his announcement shows that even then, he, he was very ambitious. They're all ambitious. Yeah. You can't be a leader without being ambitious. But even then, his ambition was for the greater good. He said, I have this peculiar ambition. Um, I'd like it to be such that I can be um, able to win the esteem of my fellow man by being worthy of their esteem. But then he says, um, but I'm going to warn you that if I don't win, I'm going to try and try again. In fact- I think I'll try five or six times, and then I might be disgraced and not try again. So he had perseverance. He had that ambition, even then, to want to make a difference in people's lives. And then he just had this ability to
1: control his emotions when he had to, writing these hot letters to people. Describe that, because it strikes me as very interesting. These, the, you know, it, it, it humanizes leaders to understand that uh, they get as riled up and emotional and kind of out of control as all of us but they have some self-control.
4: I mean, with him, what happened is, uh, the pe- best moment of it is that when General Meade failed to follow up with General Lee's army after the victory at Gettysburg, despite telegrams telling him, you must get Lee's army, Lincoln was so upset, more depressed than he'd been for many parts of the war, more angry, and he wrote a long, angry letter to him saying, you didn't do what I asked you to do. Had you done so, the war might have come to an earlier end. Um, now it's going to go on month after month. And then he put the letter aside, He would call these letters hot letters when he was angry and then he put it aside hoping he would cool down psychologically and by the time he cooled down he knew it would paralyze the general if it reached him in the field he never sent it. And then it was not even seen until the 20th century. And underneath was his notation, never sent and never signed. And there were dozens of these kind of letters.
1: And you point out that Roosevelt had his version of this, which I was surprised by, because I always think of Roosevelt ha- as having this remarkable temperament. But he too got mad.
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially in the late 30s, mad at isolationist congressmen. So it would take him like five or six drafts for the fireside chats. And in the first draft, he would start actually naming the congressman, calling him a traitor, saying, what is he doing to the country? And a young speechwriter is there for the first time. And he said, I can't believe he's going to say these terrible things in public. And the older speechwriter said, wait till the second draft, wait till the third draft. By the second draft, the guy's name wasn't there. By the third draft, he was not a bad guy. By the fourth draft, everything is sweetness and light. But he got that anger out of his system.
1: What about communication? They're all great communicators. Lincoln almost invents an American uh, idiomatic form of speech.
4: Well, The interesting thing is that each one is a communicator understanding the technology of the time. Lincoln is lucky that obviously the printed word was king back then. Your speech would be printed in full in the newspaper and then reprinted in pamphlets so people would read it aloud. So he understood rhythm. He understood not just the beauty of language. Every speech of his told a story. Then comes the national newspapers at the turn of the twentieth century. No longer are you reading just your partisan press with the speech in it. And you need headlines and you need to capture the imagination of the people and there comes Teddy Roosevelt with all those sayings, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick, don't hit until you have to, and then hit hard. And then the age of radio is simultaneous with FDR and he has that intimate conversational style of speaking. He used to imagine a person listening to him directly, not a mass of people but each individual. And then of course we have JFK and Ronald Reagan mastering the art of television when you had three television networks and then Donald Trump mastering social media. And Obama got into the Internet before that. But each one, I think, has to figure out how to communicate with the technology of the time and how to reach people. But it's simplicity, it's directness, it's authenticity, um, and, they, and telling stories, I think.
1: Later in the hour, Doris Kearns Goodwin will be back to talk about American leadership in this century. But next, the great civil rights leader turned Congressman John Lewis. I'll ask him about leading a movement under constant threat of violence, even death, when we come back. John Lewis was born in Alabama in 1940. The son of sharecroppers, he grew up to become a civil rights leader. He became chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a grassroots organization formed by young people and known for student sit-ins. He was the youngest keynote speaker at the 1963 March on Washington.
3: But we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. In
1: 1986, he was elected to the House of Representatives. More than 30 years and 17 congressional terms later, He currently sits as the representative of Georgia's 5th District. In 2011, President Barack Obama awarded Mr. Lewis the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The President called him an American who knew that change could not wait for some other person or some other time, whose life is a lesson in the fierce urgency of now. I sat down with the Congressman in his offices in the Capitol last year before he revealed that he was battling pancreatic cancer. We discussed the lessons he had learned through a lifetime of leadership and activism. You grew up um, in modest means, in the segregated South. At what point did you think you had to, you had to take some kind of leadership role in, your, in, in, in the movement in your life?
3: When I was growing up as a poor child in rural Alabama, I had a lot of questions about what I saw that I didn't like, so I kept asking my mother, my father, my grandparents and my great-grandparents, why this, why that? They would say, boy, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. At the age of 17, I met Rosa Parks. The next year, At the age of 18, I met Martin Luther King, Jr. And I got involved. I was inspired. And I grew up and spoke up and spoke out in some high and in some way, the influence of Martin Luther King, Jr., the influence of Gandhi, just reading about him, his teaching, kept saying to me, you have to be brave, you have to be bold, you have to be courageous, and just go for it.
1: You were jailed 45 times. Uh, there's a time on the, during the year of the Freedom Ride you were beaten so badly you thought you were going to die. At a moment like that, um, honestly, does your, do you get scared? Does your resolve become stronger? How do you feel?
3: During the times when I was arrested and in, in jailed, when I was beaten, uh, left bloody, unconscious, uh, I thought I saw death. I thought I was going to die. But I lost all sense of fear. Um, I became convinced that it was something I had to do. I had to speak up. I had to be involved. I couldn't turn back. Um, I had to keep going. There was there's a line you use that, and it's
1: also in your in your memoirs. Um, It's also a line Martin Luther King used in his great speech that unearned suffering is redemptive. Does that come to you
3: from the Bible, from your spiritual background? It comes to me from the Bible, from the teaching of Jesus. But it also comes from the teaching of Dr. King and Gandhi that you come to that point where you believe in something that is so right and so necessary that you're prepared to die for it. How do you get other
1: people to do this? So I understand, okay, maybe you had this fire, but now you're telling other people to do something that you know is going to get them arrested. It's going to probably make them lose their jobs. It's going to um, perhaps get them
3: bloodied and beaten. Was that hard? It was hard. It was difficult. But people bought into the idea that we're in this thing together and we cannot turn back. We cannot give up. There's this feeling on the part of all of us that if we don't do it, if we fail to act, who would do it? Who's going to act? Who's going to speak up? Who's going to speak out? And get into what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. It was like a calling, it was like a mission. And there were some people that were willing and ready to go to jail over and over again to risk their very lives for the cause.
1: You also had to take on not just.
3: The, the segregated South's
1: white establishment, but you had a different strategy than some parts of the black leadership. You talk about uh, listening to Thurgood Marshall, the great civil rights lawyer, and feeling that you needed to take a different path. Um, was it hard to break with a legendary figure like Marshall?
3: Well, I remember uh, very, very well when we were released from prison during the Freedom rise in 1961 and, and, and came back. There was a meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, where Thurgood Marshall said in so many words, you all don't need to continue to go and, and go to jail and get beaten, almost killed. And he said, we can file one case and go to the Supreme Court. And I said, uh, Mr. Marshall, we just don't need one or two people getting arrested and going to jail. We have to create a mass movement. And he said, I understand. And that's what we did. Hundreds and thousands of us were willing to go to jail. More than 400 people got arrested during the Freedom Ride. It was sentenced to six to six days in a state penitentiary in Mississippi. But it led to the desegregation of public transportation all across the South.
1: The way uh, SNCC, your group, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, was structured in terms of leadership was quite different from when I look at the NAACP or Martin Luther King's uh, Southern Christian uh, 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 Leadership Council in that it was bottom up. Uh, And you write in your memoirs that you didn't trust leaders and you didn't want your organization to be top-down directed, But a lot of the success of the NAACP and of Martin Luther King's outfit was that they were very centralized, that they were, you know, that Martin Luther King ran the show. Why did you choose a very different model?
3: We truly believe in what we call group participation. And we were spending many long hours talking and trying to reach a consensus. We didn't have uh, anyone over anyone. It, it would almost like we're going to do what the spirit said do. But we would do it together. We would do it in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion. Do you think there's a leadership lesson there in terms of how to, how to create consensus? Well, there is a leadership lesson that you have to get the great majority, and if necessary, all of the participants to be on one accord. People have to buy in, say yes, um, I'm gonna follow this, I'm gonna be a part of this effort. It's become like a family that we're going down this road and we're gonna go together down this road. If one of us get arrested, we all will be arrested.
1: Next on GPS, from Selma, Alabama to Charlottesville, Virginia. More than a half century after marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, John Lewis will give me his reaction to witnessing violence and hatred today.
3: I really cried as I watched some of the scenes on television.
1: John Lewis, when we come back. When you see what is going on today in America, those marches in Charlottesville, um, some of the violence, anti Semitism,
3: the white on black violence in that church, what do you think? Well, when I see what is going on with all of the hate, uh, anti Semitism, um, the bombings, the shooting, it makes me very sad. Uh, Charlottesville made me cry. I thought we had come so far. It made so much progress. I really cried as I watched some of the scenes on on television.
1: When you hear some of the things that are being said at Charlottesville, in those manifestos of of some of these white supremacists, do you feel like you you heard this all before in the 60s?
3: What what I see and hear now, it takes me back the late 50s and the 60s. Um, And that's what really distressed me more than anything. I, I, I thought we had changed our society. I thought we had changed America forever. But in so many ways, we got to go back and do what we did. Teach another generation and teach ourselves that we still have work to do. A lot of work to do. But I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic about the future. There are going to be some setbacks, but we will get there. We will create a society at peace with the South.
1: If leaders are a reflection of society, John Lewis reflects well on us all. My next guest, retired four-star general Stanley McChrystal, certainly agrees. He dedicated his latest book to Mr. Lewis and to John McCain, writing that they remind us that it's possible to keep our humanity while leading with courage and commitment. Stan McChrystal on leadership in the military and beyond when we come back. Retired four-star General Stanley McChrystal was the leader of U.S. and international forces in Afghanistan. In his more than 30 years of service, he has led elite forces and faced formidable adversaries. He then went on to found a consulting firm called the McChrystal Group with the idea of translating lessons learned on the battlefield to the boardroom. He has also written a terrific book, Leaders, Myth and Reality. It profiles 13 diverse leaders from military general Robert E. Lee to business giant Walt Disney to al-Qaeda jihadists Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, and more. He drew on the book in his conversation with me. You uh, engaged in a kind of leadership that is so alien to most people. That is, you were taking young people, small groups of young people in Iraq, and you were getting them to do two things. um, Kill other people, kill the bad guys, and risk their own life. Which is harder, to get people to risk their own life or to be to be systematically
2: killing other human beings. Yeah. It's frighteningly easy to get people to kill other people. And yet when you ask them to risk their lives for a cause or for their comrades, you need to raise other ideas. You need to raise other principles. They have to believe first that the people that they are with, worthy of their trust, They should believe that their cause is worthy of their accepting risk and maybe making the ultimate sacrifice. And then sometimes that gets personified in the leader. What you communicate to them, the kind of loyalty you show them is so important. And so you're really trying to get people to commit. And whenever you get people to commit to something that's good, I think you've done something that's right in leadership.
1: For you Part of being a leader, even a military leader who's out there leading a bunch of people in these very difficult situations, there's an intellectual task. There is the task of articulating an idea. There has to
2: be. Now, I would argue that if you are glib enough and charismatic enough, you can get in front of young people and you can get them to do some pretty horrific things. But if you are trying to do something worthy of the term leader, if you're trying to do something worthy of the sacrifice you're asking them to make, then there's an intellectual case that has to be made first to yourself. Are we trying to do the right thing? Am I asking for the right things from these people? Am I trying to make them perform in a way that I'm proud of? There's a great saying that says an army is just a mob with discipline. And the reality is, in any fight, when it gets hard, as when Iraq got very, very difficult about 2005, six and seven, there was a temptation to slide down and fight just the way Al Qaeda in Iraq did, where there were torture chambers and horrific things. And so you've not only got to ask sacrifice from your people, but you've got to ask them to live to values that are above that. And that's a tension as well. So militaries will sometimes want to say, let me take the gloves off, let me do whatever it takes to win. And in reality, you can make yourself unworthy of being the victor.
1: Whenever you would assume a leadership post, uh, and you, you and General Petraeus were both famous for this, you would find some way to demonstrate your physical fitness strength. You'd Maybe you happen to be running and you'd ask the young recruits to run with you. Maybe you were doing push-ups and you'd ask them. And the, the, what you were trying to show them is, yeah, I may be 50 years old, but I can, I can do more push-ups than you. I can run faster than you. There must have been a point to it. This is not about showing off. This is about sending a signal.
2: Yeah, it, it's not about telling them you can do more push-ups than you. In fact, it's better if you can do one less. But what they look at is they like to say, well, the old man's 53 years old and he's out here doing push-ups. He's out here running every day. Because he's asked us to do that, he thinks that's important to do, and he's willing to do that. It's the same way with going on combat operations. If I go on an operation with my guys, I'm no help on the ground. In fact, I'm probably a distraction because I might get in a way or I might get hurt, and then they be unhappy about that. But the fact that I'm willing to accept the risk and the fact that I'm willing to go see them do their work so that I can learn from that is a sign of respect. Do you think... You teach a
1: course on leadership at Yale. Is there one idea you want the kids to understand by the end of the
2: course? Yeah, um, probably not one you can make simple, but I would say that leadership is about you and a relationship to people, because you are leading if you are in a leadership role. The leader isn't a title, it isn't a paycheck, it isn't a parking place, it's not an honor. It's this responsibility. And it's that responsibility to all these differing people in whatever the context of the situation you're in. If the context isn't what you like, tough. As we say in the military, you have to fight the war you're in, not the one you wish you were in. If you're leading people, you have to lead the people that you are leading, not the people you wish you had. And you have to give them what they need, not what you think you want from them. How do you think Americans perceive leadership today?
1: Because there is a widespread distrust of institutions, of authority,
2: of elites. I think Americans are looking in the wrong place for leadership. I think we have to start looking in the mirror. I think we need to understand that leaders aren't this unicorn that shows up suddenly and takes us somewhere. Leaders are people we empower, we follow, we vote for, whatever. And the reality is we have responsibility. Leaders ultimately will f- reflect the values we make them reflect. Leaders will reflect who we want to be. We need to look in a mirror and decide who we are, who we want to be, what's important to us. And if leaders take us in a direction we don't want to be, we need to understand that's our responsibility. It's not something that somebody's done to us. Next on this special edition of
1: GPS, from college dropout to the world's richest man. Bill Gates grew Microsoft to the behemoth it has become today and learned some important leadership lessons along the way. I'll ask him about his famously demanding style when we come back. In 1975, Bill Gates left Harvard to found a software company with his friend Paul Allen. How did a kid with a passion for computers build Microsoft, become a leader of thousands, and then go on to run a globe-spanning foundation? And what are the differences between running a business designed to make money and heading an organization designed to give it away? The Gates Foundation has given away roughly $50 billion and counting. When you started at Microsoft, you were so young. This was something uh, that was just a passion. You once said to me, which I thought was a fascinating point, you never thought of yourself as an entrepreneur. If, If you hadn't been doing computers, it's not like you would have started a chain of restaurants. This was about computers and your passion. Did you ever think to yourself, this is the kind of manager I want to be?
0: Yeah, over time, as you're writing less code and you're hiring people who write code and then you're hiring people who manage people who write code, and you're explaining to the world why the magic of the personal computer and the magic of software can help them get things done, you really are forced to say, do I enjoy this? Am I good at this? Should I have someone else do it? In most cases, the founder doesn't stick around for 25 years and end up managing 50,000 people. That's uh, a fairly unusual case, but it's a nice case because you have a certain continuity. Nobody ever, ever wondered, okay, who's in charge here? You know, Bill wrote this in a memo. I wonder what somebody else thinks. No, if I wrote it, then, hey, let's just go do it. You were famously a very uh,
1: demanding uh, person who suffered fools not very gladly. You pushed people very hard. Um, do you think that was the best way to motivate people?
0: Well, I think it's important to separate out. I never, I didn't, other than a DOJ deposition I gave, no one ever said that when I went out and talked to the press or customers that I was you know, rude or abrupt or commanding or anything like that. Uh, inside Microsoft, we had to some degree a self-selected set of people who you know, were mostly males, I'll admit, and, yes, we were pretty tough on each other. And I think sometimes that went too far. It was very intense. You know, we, we counted on each other to work very long hours, and I you know, always wanted to set the best example of that. I think that intensity, even though a little bit it went too far, was, was great for my 20s, 30s, 40s. And now, you know, where I'm uh, a bit more mellow and I'm not pushing quite as insanely, but I'm still clear about, hey, that toilet design is too expensive. It's a dead end. We're not going to put more money into that. Uh, that um, you know works for being the, the the co-head of the foundation. Do you think there are
1: uh, leadership rules, principles? Because I sometimes wonder, if you were to ask somebody what's a good way to run a company, uh, they would probably put down a list of 10 things and Steve Jobs would have violated all 10 of those in the way he, or at least a, a vast majority of those in the way he ran Apple. Is it just too specific or, or varied to, for there to be general lessons?
0: Well, Steve, <clears throat> that's a good example of uh, don't do this at home. Uh, <laughs> that is, it's really easy to imitate the the bad parts of Steve, of, of at times being an uh, and it is, I have yet to meet any person who, in terms of picking talent, hyper-motivating that talent, uh, and having a sense of design of, oh, this is good, this is not good. So he brought some incredibly positive things along with that toughness. And I always said that I was like a minor wizard because he would be casting spells and I would see people mesmerize. But because I'm a minor wizard, the spells don't work on me. I could not cast those spells. But I see, I see them, and I would say, "Hey, wait! Don't, don't! You're, you're going to work, even more than I would ask you to." This is no, this is crazy, or, or you know, like when he did the next introduction, which is a computer that that completely failed. It was such nonsense, and yet he mesmerized those people. Oh yes, million by a million, and black cube, and all this stuff, and. I was like, wait a minute, that spell should not work at all. It doesn't have any reality to it. So Steve is a very singular case where the company really was on a path to die, and it goes and becomes the most valuable company in the world with some products that are really quite amazing. That, there aren't going to be many uh, stories like that. <laughs>
1: Next on GPS, I return to my interview with the Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Doris Kearns Goodwin. One of the things people often say about leadership is that uh, hard times produce great leaders. You look at uh, the the Depression and World War II, and you see these massive, towering figures, Churchill, Roosevelt, even for, you know, Stalin, Mao, These they seem immensely powerful figures. What does it say about our times that we have produced Donald Trump and Theresa May and people like that?
4: Yeah, I worry about that because I think it is true that, in general, America has been able to produce the leader that they needed at those moments when we needed them, whether it was Lincoln or whether it was FDR or Teddy Roosevelt and they would argue too that hard times allows you to mobilize the citizenry when there's a common challenge that people feel and that's more difficult when you've got institutions that are separated and a a system of government that's built on checks and powers, but what's happened today still I'm not sure I fully understand. It is a very difficult time. I mean globalization and the technological revolution have shaken up our economy. There is a gap between the rich and the poor. People are feeling left out of the system. Mobility is not working so that people can rise to the level of their talent and their discipline. There's huge problems in the country right now. But the divisions are not being healed. The divisions are being exacerbated. And that's one of the first times I think that we've had a leader who has not tried to heal the divisions. I mean maybe they were not successful in doing so, but is satisfied with the base that he has. And it seems like around the world there are these populist leaders who are answering the angers and the irritations and the frustrations of people because capitalism hasn't answered some of the needs of distributing and making the prosperous part of the country fair so that people can rise through the system. But to call for socialism is a problem. We need democratic capitalism. And those leaders somehow are not rising to the surface. But that was what was sort of encouraging about the midterms, more young people getting into office, more veterans. Mm -hmm. I mean I think what made our country work on a bipartisan basis in the sixties and seventies and eighties, three out of four congressmen and senators had been veterans. So World War II or Korean War they knew a need for a common purpose To mobilize people and they were willing to go across party lines to do that. Teddy Roosevelt once said something that is so presciently warning today. He said the rock of democracy would founder when people begin seeing each other from different regions or different races and religions as the other rather than as common American citizens. And I Mm. fear that that kind of division has happened in our country right now.
1: What do you think after having looked at this subject so closely? What's a reasonable definition of what a great leader is? Because in a sense, I wonder, um, you know, Hitler was a leader, Mao was a leader. They clearly had some of the qualities of charisma and discipline that allowed them to move great nations. Um, What is leadership?
4: Yeah, it's one of those huge questions that has no easy answer. But I think you would normally say that leadership is the ability to mobilize and inspire people toward a common cause, But then the question is, is there an ethical base to what that common cause is? I mean, some people would argue philosophically that you don't have to call Hitler a leader, that he wields power and he's in a position of power, but maybe leadership has an ethical element to it, that that common cause that you're fighting for is for the greater good, for the people, rather than doing something that's going to hurt them and hurt other people. And maybe that has to do with justice, maybe it has to do with opportunity, whatever the values are.
1: Do you think political leadership is distinct and different or is it the sort of heightened form of just leadership in general? In other words, does a CEO learn something from from Roosevelt and Lincoln or is that just a wholly different sphere?
4: I don't think it's a wholly different sphere. I think political leadership, like leadership in general, is about human qualities. How do you create a team? Do you create a team that you can inspire and make them want to work together and you respect that team and you share credit when something goes well. You shoulder blame when something goes wrong. You have empathy, you have humility, you have resilience. All of those human qualities I think will show itself whether you're a leader of a business, whether you're a leader in a nonprofit, whether you're a teacher leader, whether you're a communications leader or a political leader. The systems are different, so you have to learn the experience from being a business leader or a political leader. But I think the human qualities that make a person leader, the ability to grow, to learn from their mistakes, all of those qualities, I think, are leadership qualities that you can see in a community as well as in the presidency of the United States.
1: I'm Fareed Zakaria. Thank you for watching this special edition of GPS, How to Lead. I'll see you next week.
2: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at
1: 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.